One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My guest today is Tanya Cothran. She's the co-editor of a new book called Smart Risks with Jennifer Lunfer, who also appeared as a guest on Face to Face a couple of years ago. The subtitle of the book is How Small Grants Are Helping to Solve Some of the World's Biggest Problems. A very interesting book, beautifully written, uh, edited, pieced together in a way that is readable and makes sense, rooted in narrative, rooted in story. It's, uh, it's a great read for anybody interested in, you know, Solving some of the world's biggest problems. A uh, quote on the back says from um, Jennifer and Peter Buffett, every, quote, philanthropist committed to supporting meaningful, transformative change should read this book, close quote. Tanya and I had a great time. We talked about uh, travel and, and about uh, being the child of hippie parents and how that made such a difference for her. We talk about the just the wealth of experiences that we have from, from around the planet and being an artist in other contexts and what that actually uh, um, means for us. We talk about peace building and 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 about um, change and about measurement and 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 about things like mutual trust and and believe it or not, we actually have an interesting conversation about mattresses, which makes it into the book. Um, kind of gets it its own chapter. This is about grassroots. This is about bottom up kind of meeting and working with that top down approach. Don't forget face to face live.ca for more interviews. I'm uh, Toronto International Film Festival is coming up very soon. Uh, DavidPeckLive.com for more information about my speaking and writing. And of course, uh, Rabble.ca for uh, more uh, access to other uh, podcasters as well. Tanya Cothran coming right up talking about smart risks. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by another very special guest today. I'm not actually sure what number interview we're at, but uh, we're at about 310, I think. So it's a, a very special guest here today with us. Uh, Tanya Cothran is here to talk about her new book, Smart Risks. Uh, Tanya, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's uh, It always amazes me that I'm able to get one more guest that's willing to speak with me. It's uh, <laughs> So thanks for that. So Smart Risks is the title of the book, How Small Grants Are Helping to Solve Some of the World's 
biggest prog- problems. You, you're the executive administrator of Spirit in Action International, and they're, they're an organization out of California. You live in Toronto uh, and clearly are concerned about international development. Can you, can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, um, I think my interest in international development actually started with an interest in travel. Mm. Traveled with my parents, who are artists, when I was a kid, um, including to South Africa and Zimbabwe. And just seeing the wealth of experiences that people have around the planet sort of mm. sparked my my imagination and fascination. And um, that wasn't, you know, professional at, at any point. I mean, at that point, and um, I went to school for sustainable agriculture and geography, and um, through that... So then, kind, uh, kind, more, kind of related to travel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> geography, I know where to look on a map. Like, yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> where, where are the Federated States of Micronesia is the question. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, the only reason I know is because I interviewed somebody recently about that. So. Down by the Philippines? Yeah, it's 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 way over on that side of the world, yes. Yeah, yeah. way over on that side yeah. of the corner of the yeah. map. Yeah. Um and so I think with that travel and with the sustainable agriculture, I saw um just the many ways that that poverty could be addressed, hmm. ways that people were um, you know, working to change systems, to grow more food, to change um you know, food systems, and then how people were also experiencing art and weaving that into their daily lives. So, yeah, tell me more um, about that. You, so were your parents artists? Were you? Uh... Yeah, my parents are um, book artists. They make paper and hand bind books, oh. do letterpress printing, so it's kind of um, craft um, art. Yeah, and, very cool. Um, so they were invited to um, South Africa and Zimbabwe to teach paper making. So um, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I, yeah, yeah, it was cool. So I, I was only in middle school at that point. So okay. I was pretty young. Yep. Um, but yeah, that that introduced me to sort of a whole new world, and um, and again, it was something that was not. Uh, maybe getting ahead of myself, but it wasn't that sort of poverty porn of like, we're going to travel so we can save people. It was like, hey, let's go and like collaborate and teach art and let's, you know, recognize that everyone is a, a full human being and has interests just like we have. So it wasn't. So you kind of, you kind of started out with that sort of holistic, yeah, inclusive worldview. Yeah, sort of unconsciously though. Yeah. I don't, I don't, that wasn't sort of the aim of it, but. My, ge- sort of my guess is that's, yeah, my guess would be, and tell me if I'm right or wrong here, or let's unpack this together, but your parents probably raised you in a pretty inclusive environment. I mean, artists tend to have that, I don't know, open sort of approach to the world, you know, that sense of oh, mystery yeah. and wonder, like right? Oh, yeah, on um, California hippies. So <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> they are always the ones to invite anyone to come over and, yeah. you know. So would you, if you were doing like, uh, oh, I don't know, some sort of linear dot connecting thing uh would you go back to that first trip and say you know what it kind of started for me there or was it earlier than that even this this desire to 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 i don't know include others to to see to to look for other ways of you know solving some of the world's biggest problems um i mean that was one of my biggest first sort of new experiences like that that sort of shook me out of my world um of you know california central coast 
and um, and my grandparents were also very involved in um, international peace building, sort okay. of um, uh, praying for peace and that sort of aspect of bringing people together. And so that, you know, was also sort of um, in the background of my childhood. So do you, do you think it was, do you think, so I, hmm, do you think it was stories? Do you think it was people? Do you think it was, uh, um, individuals that maybe you met that, that, that had such an impact on you that it's, that that's what stuck with you? You know, you've taken away certain memories, you know, um, or was it just sort of the, this overarching sense, wow, this, this world is a big, remarkable place. Yeah. The last one, I, okay. I mean, I'm continually amazed by wow, there are so many different experiences sure. going on at yep. the same time. And I, I just got back, actually, from Ethiopia, Kenya, and mm. Malawi. Mm. And um, so thinking those experiences, uh, the rural people there are having their daily experiences, and then here in Toronto, I'm right. having my right. daily experience of yes, being on the subway and in the city. And then, you know, people in each place, in, you know, in rural Vermont, they're having their daily yes, experience yes, and it's, it's somewhere in between. And so I just get, you know, I get excited. Yeah. Well, you know what you gave this. me, you, you gave me goosebumps actually in a, because it's the kind of thing that you, you really, I mean, you see it online, you see it in film, but you don't really get a sense for it. I don't think until you're on the ground and you can smell it and taste it and feel mm-hmm. it and, and, and really, you know, experience it face to face. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty exciting to be able to do that. And I, it's a huge privilege to be able to yeah. do that traveling. So, so you and Jennifer Lenfer, uh, who I've actually also uh, interviewed a couple of years ago, we met at a, a conference in D.C. I believe called Interaction, and we just kind of hit it off right out of the gate. And and I don't know, it took us a few months to 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 to, to make it work. And I'm gonna while we're talking, I'm gonna try to figure out what 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 uh, what number interview it was, but it was a few <laughs> hundred ago, I think. So you guys have come together and you've edited this book, Smart Risks, and you've also um, contributed to it. So it's a collection. Would you say it's a collection of articles or essays or case studies? What, yeah, what they're is sort it? of like short essays and stories. We tried to really take a storytelling mm. um, angle to to it rather than a reporting or you know case study approach. Right. And so, that's very much Jennifer's passion as well. So. Right, and she she's done it. She's got a blog, uh, and I think still does called or it used to be called How Matters. She was very much concerned mm-hmm. about measurement and 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 how um, how things were actually unfolding on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think the tagline is it's not what we do, but how we do it. Right. So it's um, really looking at, again, let's not just do it one way that everyone's done before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It seems to me, and, and I would imagine Jennifer and I probably talked along these lines, but it seems to me over the years of being kind of involved in, in, in the field as well in a variety of ways that, we seem to uh, be hypnotized by numbers and we mm-hmm. love to measure what's, it seems what's easy and not necessarily what's meaningful. And, and I don't know if that's because we don't have the tools to measure it or if, you know, people want website hits, they want dollars in the bank, they want how many wells we've drilled and so on, mm-hmm. how many children have we affected. But uh, the sense, I haven't finished the book yet, but the sense I'm getting is that that's not necessarily what would be meaningful to you guys. No, yeah, we're much more interested in can we uh, sort of tell the story of 
the world that people are living in, can we build them up um, as fully fleshed out people, human beings that are doing mm. the work? So, you know, the numbers tend to make it easier to understand, especially if it, you can't, um, you know, conceptualize uh, the work being done in Haiti. You know, a number maybe is easier to to say, yes, this is working. No, that's not working. Um, but I think the stories are more compelling and um, also, sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, that's okay. <laughs> no, yeah, well, make it make it more compelling. Was was yeah. I mean, was that sort of the line of thinking around that? That I mean, I love the way you say in the uh, where are we here? You talk about ordinary people. I mean, I you know, yeah. those ordinary people that you met when you were traveling with your parents are mm -hmm. actually quite extraordinary, right? And and it's that narrative. Right. That that yeah. I think anyway, that 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 that's ultimately so life changing and, and compelling. Well, the numbers also um, yeah, strip away any sort of um, nuance or. Right. Uh, you only get the information that you're counting um, and that that leaves out sort of the, the fullness of of the work. Is that is that kind of how uh, we're wired? I've never been a fan of that kind of that phrase. It's a little too mm -hmm. a little too deterministic for me. You know, it's all it's all planned out. But do we like numbers? I mean, is that you know, when it comes to development, do we do we need them? Do do donors need them? Might be the better question. <laughs> well, I think we do overall like order or being able to categorize things. I think a lot of people are are clumpers in that way to like. Right. Oh, I understand these things. Let's put them in categories. Sure. Yep. Um, and so. That that again, that makes it sort of easier to understand if I know how to how to put them in boxes. Um, and I know that the push to have numbers is a huge um, pressure for organizations, especially smaller organizations like Spirit in Action. That you know, the evaluation using numbers can be um, a huge amount of time and money to do baseline surveys and follow up with data and number crunching. Um, and I find that for the donors that really stick with Spirit in Action, they like the stories. They mm. like that how that brings the work to life, actually, and that, you know, some people maybe stop giving because they can't see um, our, you know, two-year-out numbers or whatever, but a lot of people, when they see, when they hear the story of this person's life was changed. Right this way um and sort of being able to, to relate to it like they can now not sleep on the floor they're sleeping on a bed like that that is maybe different not a number but it, it it's something that everyone can understand well it's interesting you bring up bed because i was going to ask you about mattresses <laughs> and and why they're important to solving some of the world's biggest problems yeah so we had one essay um by sasha rabsey i think that was in her essay about um mattresses in um, dorm rooms for girls, keeping them in school um, rather than having to go home between different classes or if they weren't going to be safe at home, um, having that mattress available for them to stay uh, made a difference. And I think that that sort of may be surprising. What, what smart risk out is that someone 
who always sleeps on the mattress and is comfortable may not think, what about this aspect of development? Mm. Um, so from an outsider perspective, we, we might not know that that's a priority for a girl to go to school. You might think, well, she needs transportation to school or a school building or a teacher, um, and that, that the mattress could make a difference was um, – it's something that we can learn when we listen to grassroots leaders well, it's in, on the ground. It's in Chapter 12 of your book, Smart Risks. And let's put a little plug in here right now for you, smartrisks.org. It's mm-hmm. plural. Uh, you can learn more about the authors and the site there and, and uh, purchase it as well. So Chapter 12 is small grants as seed funding for entrepreneurs. But what I love is the, the, the chapter or the, the heading, Would You Consider Mattresses Innovative? And, and, and I'm just going to read a little section here. Often what's considered innovative in global development, quote, is what's new, the latest idea or product as in the private sector. But what if innovative simply meant including previously excluded people in decision-making and accountability mechanisms? What if innovation were found in the individual and collective reflection processes that people use to identify and overcome obstacles resulting in changes or adaptations in people's work on the ground, close quote? Mm-hmm. That's innovative. Mm-hmm. basically seeing and listening to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'd be surprised that that's, you know, the innovation is, is listen, but right. um, <laughs> right. that kind of is the message. <laughs> yeah, and and these, and, and these, just to sort of refer back, these are the ordinary people you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These, um, these are the folks that actually have access to the solutions. Exactly. Uh, we may not know outside what the top priority is, but when you ask, you can get some perhaps surprising and perhaps effective, more effective solutions. Do you, do you um, would you say, uh, Spirit in Action, you, Jennifer, the work you've done over the years, would you say you're all about sort of bottom-up development, that grassroots kind of approach, or, or is there a place for top-down as well? Do we, is, it, is it either or? Is it both and? Do we need to meet in the middle? What's, what's your sense there? Um, I think that the answer is different for different scales. Mm. Um, with Spirit in Action, our, our grants are small. We give you know, between $100,000 and $5,000. And so for us to then aim at, you know, changing the way that the Malawian government is, you know, uh, distributing food aid, that's not going to be, you know, we're not going to make a dent there. Right. Um, but because we are working on that smaller level, we then have the opportunity to reach the people that, um, you know, those individuals in the rural community that the big government program cannot reach because of their big structure. Um, so I think that there is room for for both, um, and especially the bigger scale projects that get that move beyond the capital, but move to the different areas that are further out. Um, programs that help spread the larger infrastructure pro, um, infrastructure uh, setups for maybe electricity. You know, that's, again, that's something that needs to be coordinated Mm. centrally. And also, you know, schools, that's something that the government can control for the whole country. Um, And then, you know, the work of maybe these foundations like Spirit in Action and the other ones featured in the book are about 
you know, how do we um, how do we complement that um, civil society? How do we sort of work with that rather mm -hmm. than um, you know letting governments off the hook? Um, right. But you know, but address what's being missed. In the introduction to your book, you talk uh, a, a little bit and about old old school approaches in in international aid and philanthropy could could you could you talk about that a bit what you know what is an old school approach and, and is it is are, is there light at the end of the tunnel for you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, i think the old school approach is um very much uh i am a, a organization in the u.s i'm gonna take people and i'm gonna fly them to Uganda and they're going to bring their equipment with them and implement something that they think is going to work. Right. Um, so here, this is how we do it in the U S let me um, bring this and put plop this down in the middle of Uganda. Um, and we are going to spend a lot of money doing it because, you know, we want to make sure that all the numbers are in place that people are going to look at and, um, you know, so it's just very uh, big structure and done uh, from the top down, from outside the country. And and then also, you know, things that, that don't take into consideration local economies um, that are really uh, centralized rather than dispersed or only go to the same, you know, target areas. And I think with our book we're trying to point to the light at the end of the tunnel and mm. some students at the new school who are um, in critical philanthropy class they read our book last spring um, and they said that after uh, a year of reading about all the problems in philanthropy today that our book sort of was a breath of fresh air of hope for oh, nice. yes there is a good way to you know there it is possible to to use money to help people. Uh, it's just that we have to, you know, we have to get out of the way. We have to be willing right. to listen, um, be willing to think of mattresses as innovation. Yeah. It's really interesting because uh, I was speaking to, now I think it might've been a former student of mine. I teach at inter, um, one, one course a year at Humber College in Toronto and the International Development Program. And I get to them by the third term, which is their last term, mm -hmm. usually about 60, 65 students. And what I found is there's, there's a real, uh, some would call it realism, I suppose, mm -hmm. but a real deep cynicism, I think, mm -hmm. to, oh boy, are we screwed. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, I mean, why, why did I even get into this program? You know, mm -hmm. my marks aren't going to matter because I'm moving into another field. I'm going to go into banking. I think yeah. I could, I, I think I could change the world there, you know? So, yeah. uh, but, 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 but I think for some reason, you know, academics and sometimes practitioners have this way of squeezing that kind of passion and, 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 and sense of hope out of students, which I've, you know, I've found quite, um, well, it's not even just ironic. It's kind of tragic. Right. Yeah. You want people to go out with armed with knowledge and still that sort of positive outlook and yeah. possibility. Um, yeah. So that they have energy to continue doing the work because it's not like it's easy. <laughs> Well, it's it's so not easy, and and, and 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 yet no one ever said it was going to be easy. Right. It's just, you know, I think we're we're still trying to figure out what are what are the best ways to end some of these 
um, you know, as you guys say, some of the, the, the world's biggest problems in, in the, in the, in your, uh, subtitle in the book, what's, um, how would you define, I mean, we talked about mattresses obviously and small loans and things like that. How, how would you define a smart risk? Is, is it entirely driven by context, um, or funding? How, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, it's sort of, I think a combination of the risk can be, you know, we have this money, how are we going to risk spending it? Mm. Um, and so there, the smart risk is this is, you know, a good investment um, in in what we're hoping to do. And what we're talking about in the book is that the smart risk is uh, based on the grassroots initiative. Mm. Um, it's based on local leaders. Um, it's based, it's responsive to the needs of the community. Um, and then for the funding model, it's also the smart risk is also not just one grant that you get one time and then, you know, we're, we're not going to fund you again, but it's more, um, let's give funding over a number of years so that you can get, um, established. Let's, um, support the, uh, overhead of, the grassroots organization maybe pay for their electricity and internet costs for uh, a year so that they can be uh, a successful organization. And, you know, that's, again, that's not maybe appealing to someone who's like, I, I can buy X number of bed nets, but the bed nets do have to be distributed somehow. Mm. And that overhead um, can make or break a a program. If it doesn't have any overhead, the thing, you know, bed nets are going to sit in one place until you can pay someone to distribute them. So I think the smart risk is looking at uh, ways to, to be more effective by allowing the needs of the community and the leadership of the community to come through and really trusting that, um, that, power and knowledge at the local level while you were while you were piecing the book together i mean you talked a little bit about hope and your students and you know breath of fresh air and so on do do you think that's actually happening at at the uh, you know multi and bilateral level the when we're talking about the world banks and the imfs in the world and the and the larger agencies is is it going on is there a shift occurring um it's hard to know because there are lots of initiatives that you know say oh yeah we're community-led community-focused right and then right. it's hard to know what that actually means what does it actually mean yeah yeah um but i think for those biggest organizations um you know promoting people who are on the ground if they're to have access to small funds to maybe be able to give a a few hundred dollar grant if they're, you know, a Peace Corps worker, if they can have a little bit of discretion over funds. Um, I think that that, that they can invest in the local leaders. I think that that both uh, keeps them encouraged to continue the work and can start to build up more, um, you know, base for the, for rolling out the work. So I don't know how much is happening yet, but we certainly continue to be hopeful. Right, about it. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, isn't that partially what you're trying to do with this book? And, and some yeah, of the, some of the... yeah. We're we're hoping that even if it doesn't reach the top, that you know maybe it'll reach someone who 
um, can start thinking of, you know, maybe the middle management, maybe the uh, lower employee who just says, you know what, I'm going to start thinking about this and start talking about this in a new way. Is it is it fair to say, as like I said, I haven't finished the book, but is it fair to say that every chapter starts with a story? Yes. Yeah, we um, made sure to work with each author to include a story, include names and setting, and just try to get a feel for the, for the work and to help readers connect with the stories. That well, was intentional. It, yeah, and I mean, I think what's beautiful about that too is it just it just so humanizes all that we're trying to do, all that you guys are trying to do, and 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 validates the other in a way that you know a, a capital O on other. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, yeah, I think it's it absolutely is the way forward and also makes for a much more interesting and fun read. Um, where does trust fit into all of this? Yeah, trust is um, sort of that human quality that we put in the place of numbers. Mm. So it's again, if we we're not going to be able to go off of just this is working because there's the numbers to prove it the trust is um i we are going to invest in the long term here and we are going to um sort of give you the work with you to have the tools and then um you know we're trusting you to do the work and they're trusting us to um to continue to support them and I think that mutual trust then uh, can build a better relationship that then allows allows that work to go forward in the best way. If you know, if there's no trust, then maybe foundations are constantly asking for more reports, right. and maybe the people on the ground are spend then most of their time working on reports rather than right. going house to house, talking to the women, saying, hey, yeah. how's it going? You know, let me check in with you. Yes, meeting deadlines rather than actually doing development work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that personal development work takes time. And, you know, when I was in Malawi, we were meeting with people and talking about long-term goals for this um, uh, cooperative that I wrote about in the book. Um, and they are saying, well, of course, we're all farmers, too. So we can't work on that in the next few months because, you know, that's harvest season. But after that, we'll get to it. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, this, um, right. this right. is all going on at the same time. Right, right. <laughs> Especially if, you, if um, you know, the overhead is not covered, you know. So they are, you know, working for a living and then also working for the development of their community. Uh, so there, I think Jennifer wrote uh, uh, a chapter in here, and she talks about experts. I mean, really, the 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 reality is what what you're. I think what you're trying to say is that the experts are already on the ground. Oh yeah, yeah. And when I um, when I go to Malawi and Kenya, that's sort of reassuring because you know I'm I I'm not an expert, and it's sort of when I meet people who can tell me about the context of the work and tell me how they're planning to address it it's it's reassuring to know that there are people who there are people who have ideas and I just need to you know I can invest in that they're doing the work anyway right um and we have the opportunity to sort of to boost that along but it's absolutely true that that there are experts and there are ideas and 
coming in from outside, especially um, someone who hasn't spent, you know, a whole lot of time in a different culture or in that particular culture, it's just, um, you can be missing all sorts of clues about how things might work on the ground rather than in the bubble of wherever it was designed. Do you think that the inability to see that expertise on the ground, the inability to listen, the inability to occlude and to see the other as, as human, <laughs> mm-hmm. as, you know, man, woman, boy and girl and so on, is is that, do you think it's arrogance? Is it, is it, is it, is it just, you know, is it paternalism? Is it just the way, oh, we, this is how we've grown up. We've got the answers. Two plus two equals four. It's back to the numbers thing. Or, or is there something else going on there? I think that, um, a lot of it is stereotypes. Right. I mean, what do we hear about other cultures? Um, you know, that they, in Africa particularly, that it's one big homogeneous group and they all need help. That's kind of, you know, what we hear. Um, and rather than realizing that, you know, they have parent-teacher organizations just like we have them in Canada and the U.S. Um, so I think, and then, of course, if you're working with a language barrier, then it can make it very difficult to um, get full ideas across, and so things become mm. simplified, mm. and that can sort of reduce the um, the expertise, you know, their ability to convey expertise to an outsider who's speaking comfortably in their own language. Um, I really saw that how that the language barrier can right. can reduce that level of conversation. I love the fact that one of the second, I think, or third last chapters is, is called what happens when we listen. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a, something I underlined with the, 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 um, he, he t- the talk talks about the, the process of reflection of silence and then a call to collective good, which I think is just a, a, a marvelous turn of phrase. Um, tell me, we're going to have to wrap it up here in a few minutes, but can we, can we kind of, can we kind of, I don't know, come full circle, put a couple, you know, we don't have to put a period on this because this truly is a dialogue. This truly is a conversation as you kind of lay out so beautifully in the book with, with, with each, uh, uh chapter. But tell me about the grassroots manifesto. Um, grassroots manifesto is really that, um, we all have, these um, qualities to we all work we can all work at the grassroots level Um, and it is this call to uh, work with grassroots organizations to think long term to need invest in that um the overhead and and get comfortable with with listening and with not being the expert i love it so you've got i think you've got five uh at, at the end of the book lead lead by following i love to build trust like it's your job and then in brackets because it is uh remove barriers large and small build skills for the long haul and then the last one um risk has two sides and and you know get get, com- comfortable, get comfortable with both mm-hmm. there there's no there's no one solution right no no uh, in fact, thinking that there is one solution is part of the problem. It's part of the problem. <laughs> nice. 
that sort of kind of brings us back almost full circle in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, and let me just um, throw out some numbers because yeah. we're talking about that. Yeah, yeah, go. Um, just that we had, um, we have 22 authors that are part of this project from 20 organizations. Wow, okay. Um, 30 essays. So we represent a huge um, sector, a yep. huge, you know, yep. swath of, of mm -hmm. international development. And, you know, Spirit in Action focuses on Africa, but there are also stories from uh, Southeast Asia, from Latin America, um, India. So it, it covers, again, a lot of sections of the world. And, um, you know, these are all organizations of different sizes. Spirit in Action with me just as the only employee is probably one of the smallest. And then Global Fund for Women is one of the biggest. So um, we really tried to get a whole broad perspective. And it started as a project for people who wanted to reflect on their work. So okay. again, bringing it full circle is that we started because we wanted to be better um, you know, grassroots grant makers sure. uh, living up to that manifesto. And um, and then this book is sort of the culmination of that. Do you, do you want to, just as we wrap up, do you want to, do you want to tell, talk a little bit more about Spirit in Action? And by the way, folks, it's smartrisks.org and, and the book is called uh, Smart Risks. We're talking with Tanya Cawthorn today uh, about development and all kinds of things, but most importantly about their new book, uh, Smart Risks. What, what, you, want to, you want to just wrap us up, uh, up here on the conversation with Spirit in Action? Sure. And, um, and actually, I think I think the question I really want to know is, why are you now living in Toronto and not in California? <laughs> I think that's the question we need an answer to, Tanya. Yeah, so it's uh, Spirit in Action International um, in um, spiritinaction.org in California. And um, I live in Toronto. My partner teaches at York University. Mm. So that's why I'm, I moved here. Oh, okay. And luckily, <laughs> all the work is in um on the african continent so it's sort of just again a testament to uh we're not coming from one place and implementing another you know i'm right i'm working from here because all of our our partners are the experts on the ground and we work with people in malawi uganda and kenya and i'm really just the the facilitator for the work that they're doing mm. and i facilitate an interface between um, you know, the small cooperative of farmers and the um, schools and, you know, women's groups in those countries and then um, our supporters and donors in uh, California and across the U.S. Right. So luckily with the Internet these days and WhatsApp, you can do right. about anything. It's true. <laughs> it's true. One of the benefits of globalization. Um the book is Smart Risks, the subtitle, How Small Grants Are Helping to Solve Some of the World's Biggest Problems. Uh, Jennifer Lentfer and Tanya Cawthron has been our guest here today talking uh, about the book, but also about Smart Risks. Tanya, thanks a lot for your time today. I really appreciate it. I uh, look forward to maybe doing a part two down the road. Uh, and um, uh, is, is there a part two to the book uh, in, in the works? Not yet. We're just still trying to promote this book. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it just, just came out, didn't it? It did. It came out in uh, May in the U.S. Um, in Canada, and um, there's ebook version as well. Nice. So, um, yeah, we're just uh, trying to work on promotion now. In fact, I'm tentatively planning a 
Toronto book launch in September. So I'll give you oh, please do about that too. Yeah, we'll 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 uh, we'll keep pe- people posted about it. Well, listen, uh, thanks a lot for your time today, uh, Tanya. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really great to talk to you. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.